In the District of Columbia, the law requires that all people be offered shelter when the weather falls below 32 degrees or it's forecasted to fall below 32 degrees. And the winter plan lays out how we're going to fulfill this law, how we're going to keep people who are unhoused safe during winter weather. That's advocate Kate Coventry. And this is Sounds from the Street, a podcast about homelessness and life on the margins. I'm your host, Adam Campy. Kate Coventry is an analyst at the D.C. Fiscal Policy Institute, or DCFPI. One critical part of her job is helping shape the winter plan, a multifaceted effort to serve and protect the homeless when the weather threatens to, or does, dip below freezing. This strategic plan is the handiwork of many people, including citizens who are or have been homeless. On that note, we'll also hear from Reggie Black, who's got firsthand experience on both sides of the winter plan. Outside, when he was homeless, and inside, as part of the organization who drafts the plan. Though it's not perfect, the plan is a remarkable example of community and partnership in action. Before we dive into the 2015-2016 winter plan, which runs from November 1st to the end of this month, March 31st, Kate's going to kick things off with some background on her work. We are part of the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities, which is a national policy research organization. Uh, There are groups like us across the states that are independent uh, from the center, but receive like technical assistance and other kinds of help from the center. And so um, groups like us all over the place, but we are actually part of the center. As a, an agency that's sort of rooted in bolstering the voice of the marginalized or low-income folks, what do you do in terms of homelessness? Sure. So I'm a voting member of the Interagency Council on Homelessness, the ICH, and that's a group of government officials, uh, advocates like me, folks who've experienced homelessness, and providers of services who come together to set homelessness policy for the District of Columbia. So as part of that body, I go to a lot of meetings where we review protocol and get feedback from clients about um, different issues that are happening and try to look ahead to predict, you know, how many housing slots and how many shelter slots we're going to need. And also importantly, work on the winter plan every year, the plan to protect people from hypothermic injury during the winter. We write blogs, we give testimony, we talk to policymakers um, about what research says about homelessness. You've been in this arena, this universe of advocacy for quite some time. What initially drew you to this line of work? When I first moved to D.C., I worked for a lot of local, small local groups, and I saw how policies uh, were working against what these local groups were trying to do. For instance, how our our temporary assistance for needy families, TANF, which is our welfare-to-work program, was actually counterproductive at that time to what um, organizations thought would actually help people get to work, which is the overall goal of the plan. And so I got very interested in public policy, went to policy school, and then I came here to the D.C. Fiscal Policy Institute. You just talk about a little bit of the budget involved. And how, and how it comes to pass. Okay, so here at DCFPI, we feel our budget is our statement of our priorities as a city. And D.C., in, in the last year for this current fiscal year that we're in that started October 1st, we made the largest investments in homelessness and housing that we've ever made as a city. Uh, so we put a considerable amount of local money into it. We also get a good amount of federal money. A lot of that flows through our fiscal agent, the Community Partnership for the Prevention of Homelessness, and then that's given out in grants. 
financed for various programs for families and for individuals and for youth. We spend a good amount of time every year trying to get money that meets the need. Uh, we made a really good down payment this year, but we will need budget increases for the next two fiscal years if we're really going to get the job done. And by get the job done, what do you mean? End homelessness, meaning that homelessness is rare, brief, and non-recurring. So brief, folks are homeless and in shelter around the street for as short a time as possible. Our local goal is 60 days or or fewer. Um, Non-recurring, meaning you're not coming in and out of homelessness. And rare, meaning that uh, we prevent homelessness whenever we can. And, the, and that's all built into or baked into the um, the Homer DC, the strategy. So the Interagency Council on Homelessness actually drafted the strategic plan and mostly our executive, the executive director who works for the mayor uh, drafted it. But um, all the members of the ICH, the fo- advocates, people who've experienced homelessness, providers had input and then we voted on the plan and we adopted that in March of 2015. Um, there's a host of and this city is infamous for it, acronyms. Acronyms right, yes. of, of governing bodies. But once you kind of can decode the web of folks that are involved, it's it's really just an amazing coordinated effort. So you brought up the exact reason why we have the ICH. It's because so many agencies touch folks experiencing homelessness. For instance, the Office of the State Superintendent on Education, that's OSSI. The Department of Behavioral Health, DBH. The Department of Human Services, DHS. The DC Housing Authority, DCHA. The Department of Housing and Community Development, DHCD. The Metropolitan Police Department, MPD. The Deputy Mayor for Health and Human Services, DMHHS. OCFSA, Child and Family Services Administration. Department of Health, DOH. I think those are the major ones. I probably missed a couple. Um, almost all programs require some kind of identification. Federal funded programs, you have to have identification. Well, homeless folks move around a lot, so often they lose their driver's license or they never had a copy of their birth certificate. So just in order to get somebody ready for housing in terms of the paperwork they need, we have to work with the DMV, the Department of Motor Vehicles, to get them an, a photo ID. And then often, uh, if they don't have a birth certificate, you have to work with the Office of Vital Records. So, so just very small things things um, have an interagency component. And then larger things do. There's housing that's built by um, the Department of Housing and Community Development, DHCD. There's public housing managed by DC Housing Authority. And there's also um, rental vouchers, which DCHA also administers. And, And who comprises the ICH? So there are a lot of government uh, agency directors or right underneath the the agency director, folks who can make decisions for their agency. There are providers of homeless services, so a good number of people who serve youth, who serve families, who serve individuals. We try to get a good representation. Uh, And then uh, advocates, there are folks like me. We get absolutely no money from the government, uh, so that's uh, part of our role. And then uh, folks who have experienced homelessness or are currently experiencing homelessness. And one of which is somebody we were just talking about, Reggie Reggie Black. Who is Reggie Black? Reggie Black is a Street Sense vendor, an artist, and a member of the Interagency Council on Homelessness who's experienced homelessness himself. We're in the uh, Martin Luther King Library, Memorial Library, I should say. Reggie Black. Uh, you, when you actually live through something, it ends up being something you care about because it's a part of your life. If you was homeless, if you became homeless somehow, right, I have no doubt in some capacity you'd be involved. Advocates are needed, like the community is needed to talk about, you know, what works and what hasn't worked. 
people out there? What is the, the winter plan? So in the District of Columbia, the law requires that all people be offered shelter when the weather falls below 32 degrees or it's forecasted to fall below 32 degrees. And the winter plan lays out how we're going to fulfill this law, how we're going to keep people who are unhoused safe uh, during winter weather. So it talks about transportation, it talks about where we will shelter folks, it talks about where we will shelter folks if we run out of space in, in the current shelter capacity, it talks about how we'll help youth who may be too young to qualify for shelter. So it pretty much is just our, our whole plan for the winter months. So what are some efforts or methods that are used when we hit, for example, like a cold emergency alert? Just talk about like how the plan is enacted. So there's two levels of alert. There's a hypothermia alert, and then there's a cold weather alert. A cold weather alert is when it's much colder and, and more resources come online. For a hypothermia alert, uh, shelters are open during hours where they might not traditionally be open, like during the day. Most of our, our shelters for singles uh, run on a 7 to 7, so 7 p.m. to 7 a.m. And if it's going to forecasted that, say, tomorrow was going to be hypothermic, the shelter would stay open until the hypothermic weather passed. Um, there is a schedule of transportation and there's emergency sh- emergency transportation provided. Uh, folks can call the hotline. So if you, you leave your office and you see somebody who's outside, you can call uh, when it's hypothermic and someone will come out and see if they can encourage the person to come into shelter or give them a blanket, hot soup, things like that. There was another organization that I had not heard of, um, not that I'm by any means an expert in local government, but the United Planning Organization. Yes, they manage the shelter hotline and the van system. Okay. And they're a nonprofit organization. And these are those, those cargo vans that you see running around the city that say DC Shelter Hotline. Yes. Reggie Black. One of the things that you first learn out on the street is that there's a hotline that you can call and that kind of starts the process. Whether you want to you know, take that further into some of the official meetings or everything, that's up to that person. But the first contact is actually trying to call a van or trying to secure a shelter. Uh, my first time encountering a um, UPO shuttle was because a rec center was closed for the holiday as a um, alert night shelter and was closed. So they had to transport us to a bigger facility. And that was my first time ever seeing the van before. I had heard about it, you know, never seen one. Um, I've actually flagged down the van a couple of times and got my own blankets and things like that. That's your first, your first contact is the outreach. And then from there, kind of evolved into going to the meetings where they're planning the winter plan. And I found this is a good way to, you know, to get the community to talk about what services they aren't getting and what's really happening on the street. So deploying those vans and then there used to be warming buses that would idle in different places around the, the city and they try to get people to come in when you know the weather is deemed according to the National Weather Service below freezing or then those got displaced by overnight warming centers. There's two things, there is um hypothermia alert and then there is a cold weather emergency alert Uh, and the cold weather emergency alert i'm looking right now in my winter plan because i didn't exactly remember is 15 degrees or below including wind chill or it's 20 degrees including wind chill and it's raining for 60 minutes or snow accumulation of three inches or more or other conditions that are deemed threatening by um 
HCMA. Oh, that's one I forgot. HCMA is also part of the ICH and now I'm Homeland Security and Emergency Management Administration, critical part of the winter plan, particularly, as they're the ones who monitor the weather. So we've always had, so we have our shelter that is just open year round and folks can use it. Um, we're actually talking about the threshold between life and death. You can reach hyperthermic conditions in temperatures as high as 42 degrees with moisture and a wind chill. So, you know, someone could actually die. And 40 degree weather, okay, rain and a wind chill, that spells refrigerator type conditions. So you imagine yourself in a refrigerator and you're wet. You know, that's, that's a problem. You know, see, what it is, people think that hypothermia is frostbite. No, hypothermia can settle in without frostbite. That's just one of the extreme stages of hypothermia, is that you're getting frostbite, that you're, you know, that all of this is numb. Hypothermia really is your core hemoglobin temperature dropping below a certain point. So that can happen in, in as high as 42 degrees with a wind chill. And you won't freeze, per se. You won't be hot enough to you know, keep functioning. And organ after organ begins to shut down. You then finally drift to sleep, which that's actually unconsciousness. So now your brain's not getting anything. It's not pumping any blood. It's not pumping any oxygen. Its temperature is not regulated. And boom, that's it. You're gone. I mean, it's kind of strange that, you know, places like Florida kick in there. Their hypothermia ordinance at 45 degrees, okay, you know, and we don't wait to activate anything until the temperature, including the windshield, is 32 and below. To me, it's too low. And we have a lot of people who are outside a lot, but then come in during hypothermia alerts or come in during cold weather alerts. It's shelter is very, can be unsafe. There's a lot of um, complaints about violence. There's also lots of complaints about sanitary conditions, bed bugs, uh, and things like that. And then our, our shelter system is pretty rigid. So like a married opposite sex couple can't go into shelter together. And many people feel much more secure staying with their partner and they're just not able to do that. And also you can't bring your pets into shelter. As many homeless folks who have pets have told me that they're their friends. This is maybe their only friend they have right now. And to give that up to come into shelter is a pretty big deal. So some other jurisdictions have been experimenting with, very, with different models, including models that are much more flexible where people can bring their pets in and people can share rooms with, with their partners. And that has been more successful in getting people to come inside. Because the plan looks good on paper, but there are so many holes and cracks in the plan sporadically that I think the community does need to give you know, input. Um, one of the biggest things that I think is, is strange to me is when the alerts are called off, there's no transportation at all. So like the alert shuts down everything. They say alerts disactivated, there's no transportation, there's no shelter, you're just on your own. And I don't think that should be a part of our winter plan. I've been kind of trying to, you know, find a way to push for that, but those 
things are semantic things, okay? If you are going to call the alert off, how are you going to pay the employees? And, you know, how are you going to have the vans out on the street? How are they going to be gassed up and ready to transport people? How many vans do you need to transport people, you know, from the shelter? I mean, a two o'clock, you know, alert disactivation really leaves people in a hard spot. Because um, they just end up going outside and standing in line till about seven o'clock. You're talking about three, four, five, six, going through the line and might not even get inside the building till about seven thirty because of the volume of people. So, you know, I think that's a that's a major problem, and I and I try to, you know, raise that issue as much as I can during the winter um, planning phase. Um, and another thing is that sometimes we have these communication breakdowns and you know those can happen any given day and I sat there and I watched this um, I think 2013 we're obviously standing outside waiting for a van it never shows at the time it's supposed to show so we're sitting there like well where's the van you know they will say oh this person or that person or that facility called and said there were no more residents outside huh we're outside so, you know, the community really needs to get into those planning meetings and really drill down on a lot of these issues. Drill down on what times, when, and what circumstance they are not being served. You know, not so much just these are the services we're gonna provide, you know, during the winter. They need to know where these gaps and holes at because we're talking about a life here. How does the ICH measure the efficacy of the winter plan? Well, we have feedback sessions every year at the end of the year where we actually ask clients directly, how, how did things work for you? Were you, you know, if you waited for a van, did the van come? Was there sufficient van capacity? Was there sufficient capacity at the shelter where, where you went? Uh, we also ask providers uh, because oftentimes, you know, someone at Miriam's Kitchen might be helping a client and then they'll hear a complaint that, you know, the shelter bus line, bus route time is completely off and the person had to stand outside in the cold for an hour or whatever it is. So, so we also talk to providers. Um, we also look at the number of people who die during because of hypothermic weather. It's difficult. It's not always clear if someone was homeless or not. Uh, this is something the ICH is working with the um, medical examiner's office to better keep track of and to measure moving forward. Do you know how many people died last year? It's here in the plan, but the problem is we don't know how many people were homeless. Got it. So that that's where the data improvement needs. They to be. may have died on the street per se, outside for, or outside. Right. You know, a person know. with dementia might have come outside, and because because of their dementia, and they may freeze to death. And and often, you know, it may take months to identify who someone is to if they don't have any identification with them. So that's something the ICH is working on. You know, the ICH strategic plan is a huge step forward uh, that was passed in March. It puts us all on the same page, providers, advocates, folks experiencing homelessness, and it lays out a vision with really concrete steps of how to get there. Uh, and then also last year's budget was an incredible down payment on the plan. You know, a $44 million budget on homeless services. Uh, so, and that doesn't include a lot of our housing programs. So I don't, so I'm feeling pretty good. But the budget comes out at the end of March. So um, that'll be a big test of, of how well the plan will be moving forward. Do all the different agencies contribute something? Or is that from, where does that come from? So all the money 
is actually the same pot, right? I mean, whether it comes from DHS or it comes from DCHA, if it's if it's said for this purpose, it's all money that comes from the big pot, right? The big pot that pays for everything we do from police to fire department. So it doesn't really matter to us specifically what agency it is, but DHS um, has it within within their budget. It often makes sense to put things in one per, one one agency's budget because it's easier for transparency mm-hmm. and tracking um, versus you know different agencies have slightly different ways of doing things. And so, like, trying to um, make it all make sense at the end. So that's all out of DHS's budget. There seems to be more enthusiasm about the efforts being taken under this administration as opposed to recent administrations. Is that, is that fair or accurate? We are very happy with the direction things are going, and it's been a very collaborative way through, this, through the Interagency Council on Homelessness. Uh, the ICH used to not have any staff. So it was very difficult to get things done. Now we have two incredible staff people that help get problems solved. And and these are things that I'm sure from the outside seem really like, oh, shouldn't that be easy to fix? But often, no, it's not easy to fix because we're worried about federal law around identification that's related to national security. So for instance, used to be that to get into the Office of Vital Records, you needed to have a picture ID, but you needed to go to the Office of Vital Records to get your birth certificate so you could get a picture ID. So so fixing those things and understanding why those policies are, are in place and like how we can work around the mag takes takes staff time. And it also takes a community coming together to figure out, OK, this is what federal law says. What can we do to to work around it? I'm interested in this because for anybody who would argue against trying to house people for whatever reason, you know, there's a there's a lot of data out there saying that we're actually paying more money collectively um, and it's in everybody's best interest to house folks as opposed to paying for all these emergency services. Oh, you're you're absolutely right. I mean, but you have to do both because, I mean, all the housing we need, we can't get online in one year, right? You can't build a thousand apartments in a year and we need much more than a thousand apartments. So um, the strategic plan lays out how we can start investing in more housing and then cut back on some of these emergency services and particularly having fewer shelter beds. There is something I read, and this might even be from the strategic plan, when everyone has stable housing, we all benefit. Why, why is that? If you send your kids to school with kids who are, who are homeless, those kids who are homeless are probably struggling uh, with moving around to different schools or just having stability to get there every day. Um, not only may you know your kid be distressed by the fact that their classmate and their friend is it doesn't have a safe place to stay, but um, it, it also is affecting the person's this child's ability to learn. And since we all pay taxes, we all are paying for our school system to to clean up problems that really need to be cleaned up by the homeless services system, which is helping people when they have housing instability. Um, move to housing stability. Um, I find people in D.C., it's not a hard sell. Most people, when I tell them what they what I do, the first thing they say to me is, what can I do about Joe who lives outside of my condo building? I've talked to him. I bring him food sometimes, but I don't know how to get him housing. How do I do that? So, I mean, I think we feel distressed. I feel distressed when I walk outside. I don't know if you came here from the metro, but there are a number of people who sleep right outside of this office, and I see that every day, and I think it's it's terrible. No one should have to sleep outside. And if you could wave a wand and you had one wish for the city, and I'll give you two. Okay, good. If you want to. Because I work on two big policy areas. What, what would those wishes be? 
that no one was homeless, that we had enough housing for everybody who needed it. And then the second is I work on temporary assistance to needy families, uh, DC's welfare to work program, and 6,500 families with 13,000 kids are set to be cut off from the program in October if the mayor and the council don't act. And I wish that all children in our city had what they needed to succeed, and TANF is a big part of that. That was policy analyst Kate Coventry of the D.C. Fiscal Policy Institute with artist and advocate Reggie Black. You can learn more about Kate's work and organization at dcfpi.org. To learn more about StreetSense, the nonprofit media center dedicated to creating economic opportunities for people experiencing homelessness, go to streetsense.org. And to hear more sounds from the street, check out streetsense.org audio. Or find us on SoundCloud, the podcast app Stitcher, and now iTunes. Please keep the conversation going on Facebook and Twitter at StreetSense DC. The Sounds from the Street theme song, I Need a Dollar, How to Make It in America, performed by Aloe Black from the album Good Things, used courtesy of Stone's Throw Records. The song was composed by Aloe Black with Leon Michaels, Nick Movshawn, and Jeff Dynamite. Used by permission of songs of Cobalt Music Publishing, EMI Blackwood Music Incorporated, slash Sony ATV. The following instrumentals use courtesy of Creative Commons. Special thanks to the Needle Drop Company at needledrop.co. And Death and Avalanche by Jonathan Hadel. Trickle Down and Lonesome by Poddington Bear. Toy Piano by Adam Seltzer. And We're Coming Home by Dave Depper. My name is Kate Coventry, and you're listening to Sounds from the Street.